and then see our special guest Sharon Elliott come in and continue it last week. They both did a great job. Jody did an incredible job of explaining the importance of, of names in that first week, why this series is even called name dropping. So you don't need me to do that today. Uh, I, I am not going to begin doing that today. I'm going to assume you heard it and you know why it's important that we know some of the names of God we find in the Bible because his names reveal his character and his relationship to us. Um, rather than re-explaining all of that, I'm going to trust you know it and I'm going to get uh, started this morning talking about something equally important, airplane etiquette. Some of you are going to be traveling this summer. Maybe you already have, and you'll be going where you go by airplane. And I read something really interesting this week about call buttons on the ceiling above your seat. Uh, you know what I'm talking about when I say call buttons? These little buttons with a picture of a flight attendant on them. And when you press it, it rings a little chime and a light goes on. It, it lets the attendants know it was you. You are calling them. You need something. Well, I read an article this week about how flight attendants feel when you press the call button. How would you imagine that they feel? Generally, they feel happy to help, especially when there's a real need, but more than you think, they get called for the most ridiculous reasons. One flight attendant reported that she is frequently called by passengers who report that they forgot their headphones and are wondering if they can borrow hers. Her personal Bluetooth earbuds. Her answer is always, no, that is not a thing that we do. Uh, frequently, people ring the call button and they ask if a pilot can radio down to a control tower and find out the score of a game. And we're not talking the Super Bowl, we're talking unimportant, regular season, fairly irrelevant games. Uh, maybe the most frequent thing they get is insane food requests. One passenger pressed the button and then asked the flight attendant if they had bone broth available on board. Another passenger rang it and they said, I was asleep when the beverage cart went by. Can I get a venti flat white with two pumps of white mocha, 180 degrees? The flight attendant poured them a cup of bad coffee and gave them a little plastic creamer cup, right? But maybe the worst and the most common bad reason that people ring the call button is to hand the flight attendant a dirty diaper and ask the flight attendant to dispose of it. FYI, parents, those hands are in the middle of making your food and your beverages. That's not what they're there for, all right? Well, I don't know if you have ever hit the call button. Um, one thing I read that surprised me was that most people feel kind of shy about doing that. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. I mean, the whole plane is going to hear the sound if I press it. Everybody behind you will see your hand go up. They'll know it's you. They'll wonder why you think you're so important that you should stop everything. Or, or we assume that the flight attendant has something more important that they're doing. Or, or maybe we think that there must be other people on the plane with needs who are much bigger than ours. Whatever the reason, most people kind of uncomfortable pressing it. They figure they'll just wait until the flight attendant passes by and then they'll make their request. Seems more courteous to wait. All right, I'll confess to you, I have hit the button. But I remember when I did it wondering, is it okay to do this? Are we allowed to do this? It's like calling 911. Am I only supposed to do this in case of an emergency? It's kind of fascinating. There's a call button right there, one over everybody's seat, and many of us are still not sure whether we're supposed to press it. Well, I was thinking about this, and I wonder if that call button tension we feel is the same kind of tension that some of us feel with God. We have needs, and we know our needs. We are able to identify our needs. In fact, let's just do it right now. Some of you need help with your kids. 
like more than the normal amount of help. Something's not working like you thought it would with parenting and you're at a loss of what to do and you'd say, yeah, I need help, God. And some of you need help with your marriage. Like it is headed down a road toward breakup. Seems like no matter what you do, it always ends in a fight. And, and when I said a few seconds ago, you need something from God right now, yours might be related to that, your relationship with your significant other. And some of you are needing help financially. You can't afford what it seems like it costs to live in this area, and yet you live in this area. Maybe because you have family here, maybe because you work here, maybe you love it. Whatever the case is, you are here, but being here leaves you feeling like you are constantly in financial need. We could keep going. Some of us have something we need God's help with at work. Some of us need help in some of our friendships. And some of us need help with some emotional distress we're in, something that we're dealing with. Some of us need help with something physical that is going on with us right now. And can we all just admit, part of what it is to be human is to have needs and often let those needs go unmet. And I wonder if there is some tension in us when it comes to asking God to meet our needs. What I'd ask you this morning, how do you feel about pressing the call button that God has put in front of you and asking for help? Are you shy about that? Are you too proud to do that? Are you of the mind that God has better things to do than help you? Here's an interesting one. Do you believe that his help for you will run out? In his book, Practice Resurrection, Eugene Peterson tells the story of a couple who, who went to Haiti to pick up a child that they had adopted. Her name was Addie. She was five years old, and her parents had been killed in a traffic accident that left her without a family. And the way they tell the story is they walked across the tarmac at Port-au-Prince Airport to board the plane with her. This little five-year-old reached up and slipped her hands into the hands of her new parents. And like for that moment, the physical act, for them it felt as miraculous as the birth of their two sons 13 and 15 years earlier. So that same evening, back home in Arizona, they sat down to dinner with their new daughter and they had a, a platter of pork chops and a big bowl of mashed potatoes on the table. Addie had never seen so much food on a table in her life. Uh, after the first serving, their two teenage boys kept refilling their plates. Uh, if you have teenage boys uh, or you were a teenage boy, you know what I'm talking about. Didn't take long before the pork chops and the mashed potatoes were all gone. And Addie watched wide-eyed as her new brother scarfed down everything in front of them. And then she grew very quiet and her parents realized something was wrong. She seemed agitated and, and confused and insecure. And her new mother guessed that it might be the disappearing food. See, Addie had grown up hungry and when food was gone from their table, it might be a full day or longer before there was something more to eat. And so her mom, guessing that might be what was wrong, took her by the hand and led her to this drawer in their kitchen where they kept bread. And she pulled out the drawer and she showed her a backup of three loaves. And then she took Addie to the refrigerator and she opened the door and she showed her bottles of milk and orange juice and vegetables and jelly and peanut butter, a carton of eggs, a, a package of bacon. And then she took her to the pantry and she showed her potatoes and onions and squash and just a whole array of, of canned goods. And then she opened the freezer and she showed her four chickens, a package of fish, and two cartons of ice cream. 
And with each thing she showed her, what she was doing was reassuring her that there was lots of food in that house. And no matter how fast her brothers ate, there was a lot more where that came from. There is enough. We are not going to run out. Food was there whether she could see it or not. And what she also wanted to show this five-year-old was that her brothers were not rivals at the table. She was home. She would never go hungry again. And you know what I'm going to say. That is so true of God and your needs. He has got pantries and refrigerator, freezers and cupboards full of help for your needs. But what I'm also going to say is most of us live without knowledge of what's in the pantry. We are unaware of what God has for us. And, and back to the airplane metaphor, it makes us a little shy about hitting the call button. You see, we're unaware of this name for God that we see in Scripture. God is called Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. Would you say Jehovah Jireh with me? Jehovah Jireh. And, and I might take some poetic license this morning and say, not just Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides, Jehovah Jireh, the one whose cupboards are full. Jehovah Jireh, the one who's ready to meet your needs, waiting for you to hit the call button. And what I want to do with you this morning is show you a passage, a story, really, that we see in the Old Testament where God does provide for somebody, actually, for a few people. And I want to pull some things from this passage that will help us know how we can live into this name of God, the one who provides. We're going to pull some things that will help us be less shy or less proud or less stubborn or less whatever it is that holds you back from hitting the button to the God who wants to help you with your needs. This passage we're in is in 1 Kings 17. We'll put it up on the screens. It's about a guy named Elijah. Take a look. Let's read verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, Is the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve? There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Real quick, this guy Elijah comes out of nowhere in this passage. There, there is no mention of Elijah prior to this in the Bible. Uh, he goes on in the coming chapters to be a great prophet, but I cannot tell you how he got there. What I can tell you about is the person he's talking to in this verse, a king named Ahab. Ahab is the king over Israel at this time of Elijah, but a really bad king. How do we know he's bad? Because one chapter earlier, chapter 16 tells us, Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He is the worst, most evil king of all time at this point. Maybe some other bad ones are coming later. Uh, one example, Ahab married a woman named Jezebel who hated God's people. Uh, probably a bad idea to marry somebody who literally hates the people in the nation that you lead. Like eventually, part of her story, she tries to kill all of God's prophets, a hundred people, and her husband Ahab does little to stop her. He's cool with it. He starts worshiping idols. Ahab is leading this nation down a really bad road. In fact, they're there. They are at the destination that is at the end of a really bad road. And so Elijah has a message for Ahab. There will be no rain or even dew in the next few years except at my word. Real quick, except at my word doesn't mean until I say so. It means until God sends me to speak with you again. Elijah, not causing the drought. This is God. Verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan, and you 
will drink from the brook. All right, Israel is about to see a drought for three years, which means Elijah is about to see a drought, and God, wanting to take care of his prophet, provides for the needs of Elijah. Remember, we're talking about God providing for needs this morning. God sends him to a place he can hide out because people will start to blame the messenger, right? And God tells him, while everybody else is in a drought, there is water for you to drink from the brook. Okay, first thing I want to pull out of this story. God has an actual plan of how he will provide for you. God the provider has an actual plan. Now, real quick, uh, when I make these points, I, I have to wordsmith them a little bit, right? And I, I thought about making that first point this, God will provide for you, but that is not enough. That's not what I want you to understand here. And then I thought about writing it like this, God has a plan to provide for you. That's a little bit better because it lets you know God isn't just able to provide, but he's like planning on it. But even that is not enough because you don't just need to know today that God plans to provide for you. No, you need to know God has an actual plan of how to provide for you. He's got a plan in place for you. Knowing there's going to be a drought, he's got a plan for Elijah, a ravine with a brook. I want you to think about that. Even in a drought, God has a plan to find water. Even in a recession, God has a plan to meet your needs. Even in a crisis with your kids, a crisis in your marriage, God has a plan for how to meet you in that crisis. Whatever your need is today, God has an actual plan. Now let's, let's, let's time out. You may think the best way for God to meet my needs is for God to prevent a drought from happening in the first place. For him to make it so things don't go wrong and I don't find myself with needs in the first place. But that's not how God works. And that's not how life works. From Genesis chapter two onward, think about this. We see people with needs. God creates a human. He says, it's not good for this person to be alone. I will create another person to meet their need for companionship, their need for partnership. It's just to say, you were created with needs. That's part of your design. God never promised you will not have needs. His idea was to create people with needs. And then, you ready? To provide for them. His idea has always been to provide for you. You know, some of, some of us think God providing would be evidenced by us not having any needs. I want to tell you, that's not how this works. God made you to have needs so that he could fulfill them. That is part of how he relates to us. Let's keep reading. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. We're going to get to that in a second. Verse 5. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. All right. What is this about ravens? Well, Elijah is basically camping in a ravine. There's water from the brook, but there is no food. And so God sends ravens to supply him with food. Let's stop right there. How crazy is it that God sends ravens? Um, I don't know a lot about ravens. Here's what I know. They are birds of prey, they are hungry, and they are far more likely to eat the bread and the meat meant for Elijah than they are to deliver it to him. They would be the worst DoorDash drivers ever, right? <laughs> Uh, you know how sometimes we use the word ravenous to talk about our hungry? Where do you think that comes from? It comes from the word raven, which is an old word that actually means, you ready? 
Extremely greedy is what raven literally means. Why would God choose these creatures to bring food to Elijah? Why? Maybe to say, not only do I have provision for you, Elijah, but to say the provision I have, it will not be snatched up. It will not be swallowed by somebody else. Elijah, I have so much that these ravens who eat everything, I have enough food to feed them and get them so full that they will not take what I give them for you. They will be so full that they will bring you what you need. And there's a couple things we can pull out of this. One is that God's plan might involve some unlikely sources, but the other is God has so much for you, nothing can exhaust his supply. Would you do me a favor and turn to the person next to you, even if they're a stranger, look them in the eye and say, God has so much for you, nothing can exhaust his supply. Would you say that to somebody? God has so much for you that even the most greedy birds you can think of will be full. You know, I, I think sometimes we see God providing for someone else and we start to, we see that, we think, I guess, I guess God chose to give it to them instead of me. But you've got to know it's not an either or, it is a both. Nothing can exhaust his supply. Now, there's more happening in those verses right there that we haven't talked about yet. Do you notice how God's plan involves ravens every day? Take a look at that. In fact, it's ravens twice a day. They brought bread and meat in the morning, and then they brought it again in the evening. Why, why did God not send enough with the ravens for Elijah to hoard a surplus for himself? Or why did God not, not bring enough on Monday to last all week? Or why didn't they bring at least enough in the morning to last all day? They got to come back in the evening? You know, in this situation, if you were Elijah, you would want the ravens to bring enough to last the entire drought. God, bring me years worth of supplies so that I can be confident and know that you have provided for me. Don't you want me to trust you, God? I will trust you if you give me so much that I don't have to worry for these three years. But this is the other thing to know about God the provider and his plans to provide for you. The reason he provides, you wanna know his motive for providing for you? Yes, his love, but also so that you trust him. And here, here's what we don't understand. Trust is not built because one day God helped you win the lottery and you're set with no more need for God. Trust is built with God creating this rhythm of need, then provision. Need, then provision. Let me say it this way. God's rhythm of need, then provision is meant to build trust between you and him. Think about this. Jesus later teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. That is fascinating to me. He doesn't teach us to ask God, give me enough to store it up so that I don't have any more needs. Jesus teaches us this rhythm, ask for enough for today so you can ask again tomorrow and then you can ask again the next day. Think allowance on this, not lottery. See, this is God's idea for you and him. His idea was to create you with needs, and then his idea is to provide for you. But his idea involves you and him building trust. And I'm gonna say something that's gonna sound a little crazy, but I feel for the person who's never had any need. 
smooth sailing all the way, always had money, always had health, never hit a rocky point in their marriage, never struggled with their kids, no needs, or at least no needs that they've recognized. I feel for that person because they will never know what it is to trust God. And, and the inverse is true. If you have needs, God is inviting you to something special that you get to establish with him, trust. The need that you are feeling right now is an invitation from God for you to trust him. God, the one who provides, did not create a buffet for Elijah. He sent ravens every day, morning, night, morning, night. All right, look at verse seven. Sometime later, the brook dried up. You ever feel like the brook dries up in your life? The brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So Elijah picks up and he goes to this town where God has supposedly told the woman, Elijah's coming, I want you to feed him. And he gets there in verse 10. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and he asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I might have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. Um, real quick, does this happen at your house where wherever the first person to get up and start to go to the kitchen, the other person on the couch is like, hey, while you're up, would you get me a whatever? This is the ancient while you were up. While you're going to get that water, do you think you could also get me some bread? All right, verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar, a little olive oil in a jug. I'm actually right now, gathering a few sticks to take home and start a fire and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and then die. Remember, she too has been affected by this drought and she's a widow. There's no, there's no one to care for her and her son. Yes, there were laws that God had put in place for people to care for widows, but Ahab is the king in this kingdom and Israel is not in an era where they're following God's laws. And so she says, all I have is a little bit of flour and a little bit of olive oil. And my plan was to go home and start a fire and make some bread for my son and me to eat one last meal. And then we die. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run uh, dry until the day the Lord sends rain on this land. And so she went home and she did exactly what Elijah told her to do. And we read, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family, for the jar of flour was not used up. And the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Now, so far, this story, this has been a story about Elijah's needs, but now it is turning to the widow. And, and can I be honest with you? While sometimes I can relate to Elijah, other times I relate more with this widow who's being asked to give when she's almost empty. God, I have needs that need to be met. And instead of giving to me, you're asking something of me? I need you to be Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. And instead, you come to me asking me to provide for somebody else. You're the one who provides. You do it. More often, I relate to the widow than I do to Elijah. 
But here's what we learn in this story about God the provider. God provides for you so that you can provide for others. Part of God's actual plan on how to provide for you. Remember that thing we talked about at the beginning? He has an actual plan, a how-to. Part of his how-to plan to provide for somebody else is you. In all my years, I have never seen a raven bring me food, but I've had people serve me a meal. I've never had a bird give me marriage advice when I need it, but I've had friends who come alongside and they've taught me some things. I've never had a crisis I'm going through. A person didn't help meet my need. God uses people. He might have used ravens with Elijah, but after that got old, he started using people. And God provides for you so that you can be one of those people who provides for others. Now, let's be honest. I think it can be so hard to give up what feels like so little. Let me be real clear. This is not a tithing message. I'm not trying to raise money for the church right now. Um, this could be about money, but this, this could be about anything. This could be about your energy that you've got to give up. This could be about your time he's asking you to give up. It hit me this week. This could be about your vulnerability, your willingness to share your story with somebody of a not so great moment in your life. Sometimes we hold tight to those things because we think we're in a drought. This is all I got. I keep what I keep to protect me in this drought. My energy, my time, my secrets, ensure my money and my things. But the truth is, if God is named the one who provides with pantries full of energy and time and all the things, I can loosen my grip and trust that what I let go of, he will replace and then some. That's what he does with this widow. If you keep providing for my prophet, then I will provide for you so that you can keep providing for my prophet. Whenever I teach on this, uh, I always feel like I need to pause and say, there is a faction within Christianity that would teach the way to become prosperous is to give what you have. If you give sacrificially, God will return it to you many times over. And, and, and I'll, I'll say, that is based on scripture. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Although, personally, I think it's a messy application of scripture, often used to pay for a TV ministry's new jet. What, what, what I wanna point out here. That is not what happens in this passage. The widow is not made rich, right? She doesn't find huge bags of flour waiting for her one morning when she wakes up. Like Elijah, she finds just enough for today. And then tomorrow there's more. In fact, this arrangement that she's got with God, it's not even a lifetime deal. Elijah says, this will happen with your flour and your oil as long as we are in this drought. When we give to others, the provider provides enough for us to be able to take care of ourselves and then to continue giving to others. That is what is promised. All right, let me show you how this story ends. This really takes a turn. Verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Her son dies, this is terrible. It's the only person she's got, her son. And in fact, someday when her son is old enough, he'll be the way out of poverty for her. He will provide for his mother. So she's lost her husband, now she's lost her son. And look at this line again. Did you come to remind me of my sin 
in their day, people had this belief that bad things happened because of the sin in their lives. Now, I need to tell you, as we later come to know God through Jesus, we find something very different about God, that he forgives sin, and he offers grace as opposed to punishment. In fact, as Jesus heals people, there's a reversal of this understanding right here. Jesus heals the blind, and what it says to them, God did not cause this, he's rescuing you from it. When Jesus approaches a leper and he touches him and heals him, you, sir, are loved by God, not abandoned by God. When Jesus befriends sinners, he's reversing the idea that that bad things happen to you because you sinned and that God is letting you have it. But all of that is in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, in the time of Elijah, they believed if you lost a child, it's because of sin in your past. And she thinks that her son's death is connected to, to her sin. We don't know her past, but there must have been some dark history that she thinks is causing this. And so, this woman who has been provided for, right? She has seen the miracle of God every morning in her kitchen. That same trust that has been established over that time, it is rocked. And there's something right here in this story that is so true of all of us. The trust that we have in a God who provides, that trust in God to meet our needs, guess what? It gets rocked when we experience trauma. And then you know what happens? We blame ourselves. I mean, we blame others. What do you have against me, man of God? She's blaming Elijah, she's blaming God, but she quickly turns it to her sin. She turns it on herself. And I wonder today if some of you have been blaming yourself. Something traumatic has happened to you or in your life, and it's made it hard for you to trust God. Maybe you trusted him once, and that got rocked, and now you've not been able to trust him again. And in fact, you've somehow started blaming yourself for your lack of trust and for all the things that have gone wrong. Here's what I think God would have you know this morning. Whether you brought that thing on yourself or not, Jesus tells us God will still provide for you and rebuild that trust in him one day at a time. He offers this to you, even you. You are not excluded. So this woman lashes out at God and Elijah and herself, and then the Bible tells us Elijah replied, give me your son. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times. He cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. Lord my God, right there, Elijah rings the call button. Lord my God, you have provided again and again for me and this family, would you provide life to the dead? Somewhere in that pantry, freezer, refrigerator, cupboard, do you have life you can give? And verse 22 tells us, the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. God is the one 
who is responsible to meet your needs, but he invites us to ask and to receive. Sometimes to ask and then to ask again, and then to ask again, ask again. He invites us to hit the call button and then to wait, to wait, to hope, and then to receive from the one who will never run out. We're gonna close today with a song, singing to the God who provides. But before we start singing together, I wanna just give you a moment to ring the call button and to ask God for something that you need, something you are asking him to provide. Would you bow your heads with me? And I imagine there is something you need that you've even been thinking about the last 30 minutes as I've been talking. And you know that God can provide it. He can provide an endless amount. Pantries, cupboards, refrigerators, freezers full of help for you. And we're gonna give you a few minutes to ask him. And then the band will lead us.